Uh, thank you all for coming to a uh, live, our first live recording of Teach Me About the Great Lakes. Uh, we're really excited about it. What a great opportunity to do it. Uh, before we get started, I wanted to acknowledge something, and I'm speaking for me here, not for, for Carolyn or C. Grant or our guests or anything like that, um, that, you know, there is a, a academic strike going on um, uh, to, uh, in part, try to affect change related to what is frankly, a, a, you know, a horrible situation right now with people protesting the systematic racism in our country. And it's really awkward for me to do this podcast uh, during this time. And the reason that it's really awkward for me to do this podcast is because this podcast, I've come to realize, is an unbelievable reflection of my privilege. And the reason for that is, is that I get to act like an idiot. Uh, I get to reveal that I'm an idiot uh, for an hour or so every time we do it um, in a way that, you know, uh, I'm fortunate to do because of the way that I look and because of the way that I was raised and because of things that I have no control over. Um, and that's just absolutely the case that, you know, I get to be intentionally uh, ignorant um, about all the topics and I get to learn these wonderful things from amazing guests, but I get to do it in a way that I think is really enjoyable. But but that is a reflection of, of frankly, the way I, my privilege, uh, the way I look um, because I'm a white person, white middle class person in America. And so I recognize the awkwardness. Um, and, you know, we at Sea Grant and me and my personal life are doing many things uh, to, to try to help with this issue, uh, with uh, equality, diversity, inclusion, uh, systematic racism, some of which I'd be happy to talk about. But in all honesty, I would encourage you instead to, uh, you know, uh, look at the session that was held earlier today. Look online. There's a lot of resources out there. And frankly, uh, for me, speaking only for me as a person who grew up as a middle class white dude in America, so approximately one of the luckiest people in the history of the world, um, uh, you know, it's incumbent on me to do that. And I would suggest to you that it might be on, incumbent on you to do that work as well. Um, but so with that, we are going to go straight into our show. Um, and I recognize the awkwardness, uh, the slight awkwardness to it, because this is, while it's really educational and fun, there is a fundamental goofiness to it. Um, and I like the fundamental goofiness, and I hope you do too. But uh, that said, awkwardness acknowledged. So with that, uh, we will kick in um, with the file that I've called TMATGL intro vocal theme. And you get to see your, another aspect of my privilege, which is that I can't sing, but I get to anyway. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Cha! Welcome, everybody, to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, an exactly monthly podcast in which I get people who are smarter, more accomplished, and often better looking than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. My name is Stuart Carlton. I am assistant director at Illinois Indiana Sea Grant, and I don't know a lot about the Great Lakes, which is the point of this show. I'm joined today, I'm so lucky to be joined today by my good friend, Carolyn Foley. Carolyn, how are you doing? I am doing well. Thank you, Stuart. And I feel like today is the um, the ultimate people who are smarter and better, harder working than us telling because we are um, talking to the International Association of Great Lake Research Lifetime Achievement Award winner. Yeah. That um, so that means that is a um, for those who are not who are listening to this afterward. It's an association of researchers. They usually have an annual conference that has like 700 people at it. And they're all talking about all the work they're doing all over the world on Great Lakes. You know, you say that, and it is true. It's very exciting. But I was actually perusing my CV in preparation for this, and uh, I found out two things. One, what I lack in accomplishment, I make up for in verbosity. And two, I am also an award winner. I got the uh, third prize at the uh, Georgia chapter of the American Fisheries Society conference in 2003. So... Uh, Congratulations. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, one, of the, one of the top things out there. So, I mean, I agree that we are very lucky, but it's not like, you know, many people win awards, Carolyn. 
Yes, but no, this is the Lifetime Achievement Award, and what a fantastic uh, opportunity that is. And so we are going to interview Dr. Jan Siborowski, who's at the uh, University of Windsor, where he is an, an emeritus prof, and he's also at the University of Calgary. Uh, we're there, lucky to have him here, and he's an entomologist. And I've learned two things. One, I'm not supposed to mention the only thing I know about entomology, which is that we have an event at Purdue called Cricket Spitting. And, uh, creepers. yeah, not supposed to mention that. So I won't. And I will also not mention that every time I hear entomology, I think bugs because apparently they are not supposed to be called bugs. Well, it's that not all bugs, all bugs are insects, but not all insects are bugs. Gotcha. And there is more to aquatic invertebrates than bugs. Hashtag not all bugs. Uh, fantastic. Well, let's uh, go ahead and stop this nonsense then, Carolyn, and uh, we will bring okay. on Dr. Jan Siborowski. I'm excited, though, because he's a researcher. We get to use the wildly popular uh, researcher feature theme. So here we go. Researcher feature a feature in which a researcher gonna teach us about the Great Lakes. Jen Siborowski, how are you today? I'm just fine, thanks. Thanks for that wonderful musical entertainment. That's uh, really great. One of the real features of the Great Lakes is the number of musicians around it. So That is absolutely true. And of those, I am one of them. <laughs> uh, wonderful. Uh, so uh, aquatic invertebrates is, is what you study. Is that right? What, what attracted you to studying invertebrates? Uh, I've always been really interested in water, sort of wetlands and streams and uh, I always wanted to be a microbiologist. That's what I was in public school because I thought those were little, little tiny cool things to look at. And actually, it wasn't until I was in third year at uh, Arendelle at the University of Toronto and I took a course in freshwater biology and I looked through the microscope and saw these aquatic insects, caddisflies with big cases and mayflies with gills. And I thought, those are the things to study. And so that's when I went from being a microbiologist, which is tiny stuff, to being an aquatic entomologist or aquatic ecologist or a stream ecologist, because that's where oh, I see. that's where I got my start. So for you, the insects are big, uh, not small. Coming from you're coming from the bottom up there, not the top down, I guess. When when you look close enough, they're pretty big. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I will leave out the joke I almost just made. So um, that so what uh, so so what is it about like mayflies? Why? So I've seen mayflies. Like I saw a mayfly hatch on the Green River in Utah. I've got a different story. I won't tell mm -hmm. about that. And I was like, oh, that's something. So what is it about those that like really are caddisflies that really got you going? Well, there's an incredible amount of adversity. If you look, if you go to the Green River or any rocky stream and start turning over the rocks, you just find so much diversity sitting there. And uh, they've all got these weird things that help them survive in streams, like yes, you know, gills and tusks and. Uh, little nets that they can use to catch the food and uh, really, really interesting diversity and behavior. You think these critters would be hanging on to a rock for dear life and they do that in the daytime, but at night they party. They get up on top of the rocks, they get carried downstream. And actually that's where I got my start. Uh, my lab mate, now my wife of many, many years and, and, and chief assistant and I did our grad work going out to the Credit River uh, doing drift. We'd be out there for 24 hours, emptying nets every half an hour to see what happens in the nighttime and the daytime and seeing these huge numbers of critters uh, ending up in the nets downstream at night. So that was that was our start in aquatic ecology. There's a bigger story there, though. That you met your wife. That's amazing. So no wonder you like insects so much. Yeah. So, so she, um, was, she was also a faculty member. So we did a lot of our, our a lot of our careers together. Oh, so. 
That's actually really nice. Both at Windsor and at the University of Calgary now, too? No, she's now retired. She has more common sense than I do. <laughs> but she's not the Lifetime Achievement Award winner, so it's trade-off, I suppose. She, she is a she is Niagara Award winner, Dr. Linda Corkum. She was oh, a past president of the society and really, really contributed in her own way. Okay, let me remove my foot from my mouth before asking the next question. If that's okay. next question, if that's okay. Uh, so, so um, microbiology. Does this go back to like as a kid? Because I think about this a lot. My kids are always out in the dirt looking at bugs and and oh, looking at invertebrates, um, some of which are bugs. Uh, some of which maybe aren't, but hell if I know. Uh, and so is this like go back to like childhood for you or, or or what? Oh, yeah. Well, lots lots of water, lots of camping and playing in wetlands and swimming in the lake. And whatever was there, that was what was interesting to me. So going right back to younger days when our folks would take us out camping. So at what point did you think, um, okay, this is what I want to do for my career? Like I know you said in about third year you started thinking about oh, that. I, but I was... Yeah, I was always going to be a scientist, so that you know that's always been really, really interesting. And just deciding on the aquatic systems when uh, at university—that's when we started. And so I went on and did did my grad work at uh, University of Toronto, studying stream ecology, and then uh, we went out to the University of Alberta and did more stream ecology there. And then the opportunity came to go to the University of Windsor as a prof. So we took our stream sampling equipment and landed in Windsor, which is flat as a pancake and has not many pristine streams at all. Uh, but there was a really big great lake just outside our door in the Detroit River there. And so uh, having to drive several hundred kilometers to find a stream, we eventually settled on pollution problems in the Great Lakes. And when we got there in the 80s, mayflies had been gone for 40 years. We were told there are no mayflies left. And uh, my colleague, uh, Doug Hafner, who was an ecotoxicologist there, took us out on the lake to Middle Sister Island, which Carolyn will know about as well. We were standing there by the boat looking up, and there were, there were mayflies flying around. And we just happened to be starting at the very start when the first mayflies were returning back to Lake Erie. And uh, so both Linda and I were really interested in that, and we spent our next few years studying all we could, both about the toxicology of burrowing mayflies in the lake, and also uh, where these where these insects are at night when they emerge and they carry their body burdens of contaminant and nutrients back to shore and how far inland they go and um, how they feed the birds and things like that. So we went from being aquatic ecologist, entomologists to being food web ecologists because these mayflies and later on zebra mussels and all these other aquatic invertebrates are such an important part at the base of the food web. So um, I want to... Say, uh, I tell people that the most terrifying sampling I've ever done was sampling adult mayflies because you have to walk into a swarm and it's basically like the movie The Birds. They're just flying all around you. And <laughs> like, yeah, it's nighttime. There are things in your eyes and all sorts of stuff. And you're trying to grab females and throwing them into a bag. It's, um, it's the most crazy sampling I've ever done. And it did not involve a boat at all. So um, as... Um, you have mentored a lot of students over the years, Jan, and um, we asked some of them questions about like what it was to um, to work with you and, and what types of things they appreciated. So I wanted to share a couple of clips um, about what people thought about your research um, and the, the way that you think about research. But I have to look at my notes. I wish I had a musical interlude.
is from uh, Jesse Garda Acosta. Um, and he's talking a little bit about what it was like to, to work with Jim. It was always just kind of looking about the why or the how of science, I guess. How, uh, how we could take what we've learned and translate it into something useful and applied. And I think that stuck with me because I find myself now with the federal government uh, doing the exact same thing. And it's been pretty useful. Um, and it makes it feel like you're not just out there collecting bugs. Like you, you're doing this work and you're trying to make the lakes a better place. And I think Jan has always done that. He's been great at that. So, so that's one. Um, so I want I want you guys to pay attention here. We're all researchers. Let's try to identify a theme. Okay. So that was Jesse. Um, this is Mi Sun Kang, who was a student of yours as well. Hopefully you can all hear this. Okay. Um, you know, what, one of the aspects that you always um, shared um, with me as your student was kind of looking at things in a different way that I was always kind of taken aback by, at, you know, just the way um, you kind of looked at, um, at a problem. And uh, that has helped me um, try and explore and um, kind of evaluate uh, different uh, hypotheses. Okay. Um, so I have two more. One. Third, and uh, I want to spend, send you a special hello. And this uh, is Lisa Tule. Tell you that I think the collaboration that you worked on in the Great Lakes, uh, particularly Lake Erie, was one of the key elements to educating people, but also getting people from different domains working together and uh, improving overall, improving the quality and uh, greatly improving the knowledge and research uh, on Lake Erie. Right. And then, um, so that's Lisa Tulin. And then uh, Michelle Dobrin said, over the course of my 20 plus on and off years with the lab, I've learned the importance of monitoring the lakes diligently and consistently. I've also come to appreciate the importance of collaboration. The lab has been involved in major collaborations among disciplines, institutions, even nations for the majority of time I've been around. Jan, you always work so hard to make connections and your interest and keen sense of diplomacy has fostered these collaborations. This is especially important when studying an area as large and diverse as the Great Lakes. So, Stuart, did you see the theme? Yes, Carolyn, I did see the theme. <laughs> I saw several themes, actually. What theme of the ones that I saw would you like me to discuss? Well, I was going to ask um, Jan, actually, if he wanted to talk about, um, like, something that we heard is you were always a big picture person, and um, you're trying to bring collaborat collaborators together and do... So, um, what... In, how did that sense of, you know, how did it develop that being that type of researcher? How did that develop? It's um, a really good question. Well, the Great Lakes are a really big place and there are huge, huge problems. And there are so many really good people around. And to think that any one person can address those those questions and have the answers when there are so many good people around who are more experts than you are best way to, to try and uh, answer those questions is to get all the experts together, get them to play nicely together, and give them a chance to look at what they really want to and not have to worry about all that other stuff that's somebody else's expertise. And, and really, you know, uh, the most amazing thing about the Great Lakes, about Iagler, is it is one, one big family. I mean, we've got a huge ecosystem, huge problems, but a huge wealth of talent and a real willingness for people to work together and see the bigger picture together. 
all you need is a big enough room and the right sorts of beverages. And, you know, people really are willing to work together. You know, I, when I when we first started out and we saw all these challenges and all the experts, it was the idea of stone soup. I'm sure you've all heard that before, you know, individually, nobody has the resources. But and we started, you know, during one of the real valleys when all the funding was being cut everywhere. There were no options to work on your own. And so the only way to do it was to bring together your boat or your D-net or your ponar grab or your expertise, put them all in the room, recognize the common problems. And then, well, with different people in different places, you can get an awful lot of sampling done and really address those big questions. And you can ask the overall questions and people can still answer their own, their own special question, like why are mayflies more important than everything else? <laughs> because they are. <laughs> <laughs> but that's my exact question. So a lot of our audience, especially tonight in the live uh, live um, webinar room or whatever it is, but also who listen, are, are graduate students or early career researchers. How do you balance those two things? Because there's a pressure to publish, right? Um, and, and I get this impression with like these really big picture things, you're going to get, you know, not as many publications out of that. Is there a way to balance those? Or do you have any advice on that kind of generally? So the, the big picture things are all the little pieces put together. So everybody has their own their own little question. The first question, I mean, one of the reasons I think our lab has been so successful is it's both both the lab and things like the Millennium Network is that they are open doors. Anybody who wants to take part is welcome. You know, I don't think anybody ever walked in our lab door that we couldn't find something for them to do. And uh, they meet the rest of the community and they find where their strengths are, where their complementaries are and where they can go next. And so, yes, they're part of the big picture, but you're interested in mayflies or mites or detritus or dirt, well, we can find a project for you that results on that. And you're going to be the expert in dirt <laughs> in three months. And that's not an exaggeration because so few people care about it. You're going to become an expert. <laughs> and it's when you put those pieces together that you can see it. And you just need a few people to be able to put those parts together and assemble the jigsaw puzzle, then you get the, then you get the big answers. And to be fair, the agency people, the managers, we had some really visionary people who saw the benefit of this, and they really supported uh, these groups coming together, and they made possible things like the network. They put out the EPA would make space on the Guardian, Environment Canada would make space on on the Limnos, and good grief, we could just go out on the biggest boat in the Great Lakes and. Third-year students were suddenly finding themselves out there as well, meeting the scientists and, and really setting the, the goal of their future. So there really is opportunity. So um, you mentioned the Millennium Network. Can you just briefly um, talk about what that is? So it's the Lake Erie Millennium Network. And can you talk briefly about what it is? So this was started in the mid-1990s. And uh, there were four of us who started that. Uh, I was at the University of Windsor. But there were other people who also really believed in this collaborative idea. Jeff Reuter was the director of the Ohio Sea Grant. Uh, Murray Charlton was a scientist at CCIW. And Russ Kreis was the director of the Large Lakes Lab at Gross Hill. And each one of these people, they would see the problems. Like, we're being overrun by zebra mussels. You know, there's no phosphorus left in the lakes. What are we going to do? And each of these people would say, well, let's have a workshop. And they would bring in the local people to sit in a room and discuss what the problems are. The very same model, you know, bring everybody in who wants to come, hash it out, come up with some ideas, some different hypotheses, and go out and test it. And so 
And Jeff really was the impetus to start this, but Murray also brought these people together. And with two university people and two government people, two in Canada, two in the US, we said, well, let's put this together. Let's make this a network and invite anybody who wants to come uh, to sit and have these meetings. We'll ask, what are the problems? When we see the problems, we'll ask, what are the solutions going to be? Then we'll write these white papers, these ideas about how things might work. And if everybody's part of it, when EPA or Environment Canada has funding, well, we're probably the best people to answer that question. So we generated our own momentum. We provided the research needs. And those those managers, they found the funding to support these large-scale projects. And that that really helped things go on. And we were on Lake Erie, but there were similar things going on like that on Lake Michigan and Lake Ontario. Again, key features really collaborative, involved people who can bring people together and define the big problems and then go out and, and execute them. So the Great Lakes are unique in that community. So what's, it's interesting. So one, one theme I'm noticing is, is that you, you know, you're a big time bug nerd, I think. Is that fair to say? Inverted, sorry, no. Invertebrate nerd. Everything nerd. Yeah. yeah. Invert nerd. An invert. Uh, and, uh, and, and, but, but you're also really interested in these, in the, this big picture, which I think is fascinating because you use, uh, your, your invert, your, your nerdiness about invertebrates, your deep interest and skills in working with invertebrates is another polite way to say it. Uh, but to answer some of these big questions too. So like, what are some big things that we understand about the Great Lakes kind of as a result of the work that you've done or you've done with collaborators? If you want to be uh, uh, modest, I recommend not being modest. Um, but, but, you know, obviously it works well for you. So whatever. The big questions we've answered. Um, answered is a hard word for scientists. I recognize <laughs> no. that. Uh, I've taken off my scientist hat and put on my podcast host. But what are some uh, issues you've been able to address? Or what, what do we know about the Great Great Lakes as a result of your invert work? Okay. So one of the things I've noticed over the years is that we seem to go from crisis to crisis. You know, we, we talk about having long-term programs and so on. But every year there's a different crisis. Water level's too high. Water level's too low. Too many dry scenids lakes turning green, we've got a dead zone. Each one of those becomes a question that occupies everybody's mind, but it's an expression of what's going on in the Great Lakes. And all those different things go together as boxes and arrows. Boxes are, you know, the numbers of different types of carbon or bugs or whatever. The arrows are the rates in which they flow. That's, that's engineering or modeling, if you like it. And you can make a model as mathematical and complicated as you want, or as abstract and, you know, this is another one of my uh, my themes, is models go all the way from uh, the, the beer-soaked napkin at the bar at the end of the day at Iagler to the, the dials that the engineers turn on the water treatment plant at the other end. And you can make it as abstract or as detailed as you want, but somewhere along that continuum you're going to find the model that fits the question that's the current crisis. And if you can engage people about talking that, you can come up with a model that everybody agrees on and is willing to take a piece of. When we start to fill in some of those boxes, then we can come up with some answers that match the crisis of the time. So. But part of my so so I I am I'm I'm not a, a professor uh but but I do notice that thing of like crisis to crisis or project to project and that ability to maintain things beyond that though is like a real problem I see you know like with uh, decision support tools I've worked on developing some of those I do the social science side of it and like mm -hmm. you know people work really hard to develop a decision support tool and then the funding runs out 
and then they move on to the next thing. And, you know, who knows what happens to the support tool or the people who are supposed to be helping. And so have you found success in like, like bridging the, those gaps between, uh, you know, like projects or trying to make some sort of coherent theme or make some coherent difference? That's probably the most creative part is reinventing the, the same group of people, the same set of questions to match the, the latest crisis coming up there. Yeah. I think, uh, I think both uh, the members of the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement have recognized the need for long-term monitoring. And by coming up with both the GLRI and the Water Quality Agreement, there's been a real commitment to longer-term funding. Yes, there are year-to-year projects that only last a year or two. But behind that is a real backbone of seeing the Great Lakes as an ongoing problem. And in addition to having, you know, professors at universities whose funding start and stop, we have some tremendous institutions. We have NOAA, we have Environment Canada at CCIW, we have Fisheries Notions, we've got Great Lakes uh, Science Center. All of these people are committed to career-length monitoring. And really, you know, I, I just argue that research is only monitoring when you've got a hypothesis. It's the same thing. And they provide the backbone that lets us keep going as these different things come along. And again, being able to have a forum like the network where everybody can come together and fertilize ideas across one another is what really keeps things going. Sure. And I'll put links to some of these. I, uh, I'm i so incompetent as a host, uh, but I'm the host we got. I will put links to these in our show notes, which you can see at uh, www.teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com slash 12, because this is episode 12. I'll make one more point about continuity, and the real continuity in the Great Lakes is Diagler, which crosses all of those boundaries. And at their annual meeting, they give us a chance to talk about these things as well. Excellent. And it's really great that in these... Um Inter- like the COVID-19 times and stuff like that, there was such an effort to to do the virtual environment. That was really cool. Yeah. Um, okay, let's get real, Jen. What's the craziest field story you have? So uh, I was talking to Linda about this to see which ones would be appropriate. None of them are embarrassing. I, I have two. Both of them involve mayflies. Uh, one involves when we were starting to look at the, you know, how quickly mayflies were coming back. Uh, we thought we have to find out how far can mayflies fly inland. So we came up with blacklight traps, and this is a, you know what a blacklight is? You know, it's a, like, okay. So we've, we got battery-powered blacklights, and we set them on top of uh, galvanized pails with carbon dioxide in the bottom so that a, a bug would sort of hit the trap and drop into the pan. And to see how far they were going, we had to put them at increasing distances away from the lake. So we would find dark country roads, and we put one just 50 meters away, and then 100 and 200. 400, 805 kilometers away from light, which is out in the middle of nowhere. So think about a Friday night at two in the morning because mayflies only fly at night. And somebody is driving with their date back into town. And suddenly, out of those corners, there's this blue thing with some strange people standing around it, huddled over a pail. Think, what was that? Two and a half kilometers later, there's another one, and it's gone. And then one and a quarter kilometers later, and as they get closer and closer to the lake, they get more and more abundant. And by this time, they have to stop and ask. And guess who they ask? What are you guys doing at two in the morning? Uh, and we have to explain all about mayflies and the recovery of Lake Erie. So that's that's one story that we have to tell. Um, the other one involves going out at night, sampling aquatic invertebrate drift for 24 hours. You have to walk out into the stream, rocky stream, three in the morning. There's not a cloud, in the, not a star in the sky. 
things are clouded over. You can't use a flashlight because you might scare the bugs. You don't want to disturb things. And so, you know, by the time you've been up for 18 hours, you know, you know, that Freddy is not really out there to get you. But you're you're, you're never quite sure from Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> so you go out there, and these nets are about this size, and they, they get all this detritus on the side. So what you have to do is you have to sort of massage it down so all the bits go into the net, and then you have to reach inside. So three in the morning, I'm there by myself, wading out into the Credit River. A light mist is falling. You can hear strange, I think it's background. I went to go and get the net, and it goes, wriggle! <laughs> And because it's pitch dark, uh, a brown trout about this size was head first in the net. And when I went to shake it, it shook my hands back. And it was one of the scariest nightmares I've ever had. Um, <laughs> but we let the trout go. That was the end of that. So. <laughs> you have a spine. Get out of here. <laughs> I don't want you on your spine. <laughs> That's good. Um yeah, field life is an interesting life. I don't do field biology anymore. I was for a while. I'm a social scientist now. I did uh, fisheries biology for 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 a mm -hmm. bit, uh, and uh, I do miss. You know, there's a camaraderie with the field that there isn't anywhere else, right? Um, and it sometimes it's not always the healthiest or best camaraderie, but it is it is there, and it's it's uh, it is something that I genuinely miss. Yeah, we we certainly remember the good times. We remember the bad times too, but they become good times as well yeah. in retrospect. No, that they do. They're all good times. That they do. So yeah. if you are a graduate student, yeah, and you can do more field work, now's the time because eventually you'll get families or you'll get responsibilities, and yeah. uh, you know the time for that decreases. Being part of that field team uh, can be the best time of your life. Really, you, the friends you make there and the acquaintances they last forever. Like, yeah. So you you never lose track of your old friends. Yeah, that's true. Because, yeah, you have a lot of crazy, crazy, crazy adventures. But earlier today, um, Iagler hosted a, a Jedi Just Equity Distribution, uh, sorry, um, Diversity and Inclusion session. Um, it'll be available online uh, um, afterward. But um, given all the discussion that's happening right now, I was reminded um, a couple months ago, I was able to hear Catalina Martinez, who is a physical scientist um, at NOAA, and she was talking about how to help um, graduate students and get more, um, more students interested in science um, and how to pull them in. And one of the things she said was uh, basically like take a chance on people that if you see someone. So if anybody, I don't know if anyone on this list is a Gilmore Girls fan, but um, if anybody imagines Paris from the Gilmore Girls, who um, was like angry that she couldn't volunteer on Thanksgiving because she wasn't going to get into Harvard if she didn't have those extracurriculars. She had her perfect GPA. She had straight A's. Um, so Jan, in your lab, um, did you bring in students who maybe didn't have the perfect, perfect record? And, and what um, what did that mean for your lab? We, uh, this, again, I was talking with Linda about this, uh, this today, and uh, we've always had a really open lab. We had a big lab because in the summertime, there are so many things to do. We've got a, a billion mayflies to sort. And so we always had an open door. We always advertised for work-study students. And if somebody came in the door and wanted to volunteer, we always found something for them to do. We wouldn't just let them volunteer. We just figured work is work, and we'll find a way to support what, what you're doing. And so we recruited an awful lot of people, um, people who were just interested in critters and bugs and meeting other people. And because we had such a diversity, 
another philosophy we had is that everybody in our lab learns to do everything, whether it's dirt or bugs or so on. And that really built bridges across ideas. It convinced people that they can do absolutely everything. And some of our most successful people came in as work-study students only because they needed they needed support to get through school. But we had such enthusiasm in the lab that they got interested and some of them changed directions and some of them are now our, our top Great Lakes scientists as well. So giving people the opportunity really is an important sort of thing. And I guess the biggest problem is how do you advertise that you can make that opportunity available for anyone? Because just even knowing about that is really difficult. We had a discussion about this at Calgary today with the grad students. How do you let people know that the doors are open, that they're welcome to come in? You know, we, we can invite people, but if you're not there to hear the invitation, you're not going to take it. Right. Did you come up with any um, key steps that you were going to follow at the University of Calgary? Uh, I had to leave the discussion before we got to the end of that, so I, I don't have an follow answer up. for that. Yeah. Okay. Great. Well, I have a couple more recordings from some of your students um, related to the environment in your lab and, and sort of um, what they thought. So this is um, Shiva. Is Shiva. Well, most of my memories of Jin are just like little snippets of things here and there, like um, being out in the oil sands with Jin and, you know, his hard hat was always on a skew and, um, Jin always had like an interesting fact or like, um, just, he knew so much about everything. He was always able to talk about wherever we were, whatever we were doing or reference a study and, uh, and Jin was just awesome to be around. And, uh, you could always tell that the other researchers really respected him and loved him, um, and one of my favorite things that happened... Oh, I forgot that I was going to... She's got a really great story, and I'm <laughs> going to send this to you, but I'm not going to play that story right now. It's really good, though. Oh, um, one of those and- <laughs> stories. Okay. Well, I'm excited. But so this is something that impresses me, is that, like, Carolyn reached out to us. So you had this really amazing lab group, is my understanding. And Carol, I don't know if we cleared this in advance. I forgot to say, Carolyn used to work for Jan. So we are conflicted as can be, but this isn't journalism, so we don't care. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and when Carolyn heard that it was going to be Jan, uh, she was so excited, uh, that she, we have other co-hosts. She shoved them aside and said, no, this is going to be me. Um, and that was fine. Other than since it's COVID, like the one that was hospitalized is very grumpy with us. But anyway, uh, but what, what has been consistently, um, Everything I've heard is just this love that people have for how welcoming you were. And, uh, uh, you know, so Carolyn reached out and she was like, I need some stuff. And, and like, she's got this stack of videos. I mean, digital things don't have the thickness, but if they did, it would be like that thick. Uh, uh, and, and audio and people reaching out and people saying they're going to reach out and you know how that is. Um, and so it's just been really impressive and I think kind of inspirational, I think, to that idea, like you're saying of having an open door and caring about people and, uh, uh, you know, finding something for people who are interested to do regardless of, you know, their GPA or if like me, they took genetics twice, including once with their future wife's notes. Uh, Yeah. Uh, So I think that that is something that I've been really impressed with. Right. And um, so I have all these and I'll send them to you, Jan, but one more I wanted to say is from uh, Yakuta Bakat and, um, she mentioned specifically that despite your perpetually heavy workload, you have always made time for your students in mentoring them and helping them learn and grow as scientists. And then she also said um, that when people learn about the tenure in her lab, they instantly respond with a smile and look that can that can best be interpreted to mean, well, she's one of Jan's students, so she must know what she's talking about. Um, so thank you. Um, and, and I guess um, anybody who wants to learn to be 
a good mentor. I told people if I made it through today without crying, I would do well. But if anyone wants to learn how to be a good mentor, reach out to Jan Subrovsky because he really did always have an open door. So thank you on behalf of all the students. And um, the the there's a lot of good people doing great work because of the help you gave them. So. Thanks a lot, Caroline. That really means a lot. I can think of no greater testimony than that. But I'll be honest, Jen, uh, as wonderful as it is, that's actually not why we invited you on uh, Teach Me About the Great Lakes. Uh, making Carolyn cry is always a benefit, but it is not <laughs> the primary reason. The primary here reason is we have uh, two questions that we'd like to ask all of our guests, or all of our guests starting, uh, I don't know, about three episodes ago, because we're an evolving organism here at Teach Me About the Great Lakes. And the first of these is, to me, the most critical, which is, if you could choose a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, but not both, you got to pick one or the other, which would you choose? Hands down, it would be the great sandwich. Great sandwich. <laughs> I, can't eat, I can't eat breakfast. I love donuts, but I got to wait till lunch to eat, and so it's got to be the great sandwich. Well, that kind of—I mean, you can have sandwich. You can have donuts for lunch. I don't know if they do that in Canada, but in America, we very often have donuts for lunch. Um, do you know someone named Fred Penner? No. Should I? Oh, he's a great Canadian saying? musician. And his theme song is "I Love Sandwiches." I eat them all the time. Okay, <laughs> get that and add that to your theme song for the for your closing. You know what? It'll be linked in the show notes. Uh, I can promise you that. So great. All right. So you're in. So do you live in Calgary now? Did you move to Calgary? Or are you? Yes. Uh, yeah, we live in Calgary. Do they Canadian let award winners wear wherever they want? Okay. So when I'm in Calgary next time, I will put on my coat, uh, my warm coat, and a toque. Right, and I will walk in Calgary in July. And where uh, where should I go to get uh, where should I go to get a great sandwich in Calgary? Uh, our kitchen, <laughs> like literally Jan's kitchen. That's right, done yep. and done. Sorry, everybody, welcome. this is only offer only eligible or only available to eligible hosts. Um, but <laughs> next time I'm in Calgary, I'm going to your kitchen, Jan. That's wonderful. So, what's a good sandwich? Like, what do you like to put in your? Oh, uh, cheese and salami. and Cheese and salami. And, just uh, good, fresh, delicious stuff. Yeah. Lotus uh, and arugula. And arugula. Hot sauce, yeah. Arugula, I love a good yeah. piece of arugula. Um, there's a history with arugula that we won't go into. <laughs> that you don't need to know about, although you may. Anyway, all right. So the uh, second, second question that I think is really important is, what is one piece of life advice you might have for our listeners? It can be big or little, silly or serious. It can be something that you thought of, something you got from RuPaul, uh, you know, whatever you think. What is a piece, we like to leave people with a little nice life message. Okay. Uh, this is a, this is a Carolyn will know what this question is. It's the question I challenge everybody with. It can be your piece of life, life advice. Whatever you're working on, whatever you've written up, what is the title? Because if you haven't summarized it down to title, first you can say, oh, that's really hard. But you need to be able to summarize what you're working on in a title. If you don't have a title, you haven't really thought it through yet. So you need to think a little bit harder. So what is your title? There we go. That's actually really, really good and really, really nice. And uh, like immediately I start thinking of my work, of course, but then I start reflecting on my greater life and I'm like, hmm, right now my title involves a lot of ellipses. So maybe it's time to work on that. Well, Jan Sibrowski, IAGLER Lifetime Achievement Award winner. First of all, congratulations. And it seems to me based on the little research I've done that it's extraordinarily well-deserved and based on just a lifetime of fantastic work. And uh, second of all, I encourage... Um, people to visit your, do you have a website or something you'd like to send people to? I do. I have uh, uh, one that's very old and out of date, uwindsor.ca slash. 
it's okay. I never know ours. It's fine. You're good. Nobody knows the website. And there's also a University of Calgary, ucalgary.ca slash contacts. There we go. Tell you what, we will put it on in the show notes. Anybody who's interested could go there um, and check it out. And thank you so much for agreeing to appear on Teach Me About the Great Lakes. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a great opportunity. It's wonderful to see see you and see you again, Carolyn, and to hear all of this stuff. And really, thank you to IAGLER and thank you to the Great Lakes Committee. I miss you guys so much, everybody. So thanks again. That was really amazing, and what an opportunity to talk to an award winner. We'd like to thank our host at IAGLER uh, for inviting us. Carolyn, what is something that you learned about the Great Lakes today? Well, mayflies are the best. I didn't learn that today. Um, but um, one thing that I learned that is, I'm sorry, unrelated to the Great Lakes, but how have I not taught you about Fred Penner? There's always some, anytime I'm a co-host, there's Canadian content. We always make, you always make some kind of joke about it. And I cannot believe that I haven't taught you about Fred Penner. So I learned that I am remiss in my, my duties as Canadian. I would also... Um, That'll just have to be the spinoff podcast. Teach me about Fred Penner. It'll be like two episodes, <laughs> but it'll probably be solid episodes. Yeah. I would also really, really, really like to thank everyone who um, submitted movies um, and uh, and documents that um, we're able to share with Jan and talk, because I really think it really shows um, what it was really like to be in his lab. So, And thank you to uh, Jess Ives for her help uh, wrangling all those up. Jess Ives is also uh, working hard at IAGLER. I believe she's hosting a session um, t- tomorrow. I apologize if I have that wrong, Jess. Okay, Stuart, what did you learn about the There we go. Today? That's usually Sorry, the follow-up there. Right. Actually, what I want <laughs> to talk about, too, something about this. I think it was a bigger picture thing. It's not about the Great Lakes, although I did learn something about mayflies that many people think they're awesome. Um, I feel like that's up for debate as to, like, the relative status uh, uh, among Absolutely the animal not. kingdom. I mean, even in the plant kingdom, frankly, in all of life. But, but I mean, mayflies are certainly a thing that exists. Um, but what I really learned is this, is that, uh, you know, if you are thoughtful enough and if you are careful enough, it's, it's possible to blend a bunch of different things. It's possible to blend like the small picture stuff, whether that's mayflies or whether that's, you know, um, whatever it is that you're nerdy about, right? Find the thing you're nerdy about, but it's possible to blend that with these bigger picture things. And, it, and if you get enough of these people together who are nerdy about something, but willing to look at this bigger picture and you get, and I wrote this down, a big enough room and the right kind of beverages, uh, you can get all sorts of people to work together. And I think that that's actually a really important message, whether you're, you know, an academic or a quasi academic like I am, or, uh, I think anywhere. Right. Um, and so that sort of big picture thing is what I've been thinking about the most. So Carolyn, uh, where can people find our stuff? I never remember the things. Do you remember some things? Um, so you can visit, so we are both with Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. You can visit iicgrant.org. Um, we are also on Facebook and Twitter, Twitter and Instagram and maybe YouTube. I L I N C Grant. And all those. And it's. What about the buoys? We yeah, got some buoys. Uh, if you, if you didn't hear well, our last episode. No, well, no. First I have to say oh. C S E A, not the letter C. But yeah, then we also have a lot of our specialists are on Twitter, um, including two real-time buoys that tweet. Um, but then there's also a whole bunch of other people. So we encourage you to learn more about what we're doing to help. Um, you can visit the IAGLER website at 
IAGLR.org. And when you're there, you can learn about the society, um, the conferences, they have a journal, they have awards and scholarships that are available for graduate students. I encourage you to reach out there too. Um, and thanks again to um, Ed Verhamey and Paul Sibley, um, but mostly Ed Verhamey for helping set this up. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Thank you to Ed. Thank you to Carolyn. Thank you to Jan. And everybody, I encourage you to go to teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com. Subscribe, rate, review, all of those things. Tell your friends about us if you have friends. If you don't have friends, go make some friends expressly to tell them about the show. And uh, in between now and them, keep liking those greats and keep grating those lakes. Awesome.